0: Let us open our Bibles to John chapter 1. This morning we're considering verses 6, 7, and 8. As we begin, let me draw your attention to Psalm 19. 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Let me ask you, what do the heavens do? I just told you literally. They declare God's glory. What does the sky do? It proclaims his handiwork. And whose handiwork is that? Well, the handiwork of the word. The word, remember, by the word of God were the heavens made. By the word, all things were made. By that word who was with God and who was also God. And this eternal word... He, as John called him, he created all things. But if we understand Psalm 19:1 properly, then the word of God, he created all things in order to tell a story, in order to tell a story. Creation is a story materialized. It is a story materialized. The heavens are telling you and I and me a story. The sky is telling you and me a story. Now, how often are we, are we being told that story? Psalm 19, verse 2, speaks of the frequency. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, creation is constantly telling us a story. Creation is a witness. Creation is a witness. Amazingly, God has embedded in creation itself the beauty of witnessing. Creation doesn't speak. Nevertheless, it is always pouring out a powerful witness. Why do I mention this? I mention this because I want us to think about one particular witness who stands in the heavens above. It is a very interesting Witness, one that has not been graced with astounding beauty in and of itself, and yet occasionally at least captures our attention, especially when the words full or blood are attached to it. Can you guess my riddle? I'm thinking about the moon. The moon. I love the moon. Do you love the moon? (laughs) <laughs> you can be honest, ah, I haven't thought about the moon. But I love the moon because, like the rest of creation, it also tells a story. It tells a story. That's why the word created the moon, right? To tell us something. The moon, if you think about it objectively, and I have nothing against the moon, huh? but it is not really that attractive. On July 16, 2015, the Discover spacecraft took a picture of the moon with Earth in the background, and it looked rather depressing, to be quite honest. Imagine the Earth with all its vibrancy of colors. It is quite stunning. Against that backdrop, the moon looked like a very obscure, unattractive rock. In fact, from that angle, it reminded me of a skipping rock. Really not much to it. But the thing that I love about the moon is that the story she tells is not about herself. The moon reveals a story in which she's not the main character of the story. The moon is hanging out there to serve a greater purpose, much, much greater than herself. I like to imagine that if the moon could have spoken to the scientist's on board the DISCOVER spacecraft on July 16th of 2015, she likely would have asked, why are you taking pictures of me? Don't you know that I'm here only to serve someone greater? You guys are missing the main attraction, to which the scientists could have responded, wait a minute, moon. We have seen you from earth many times and you look quite beautiful, especially during a clear night. You shine so bright, moon, to which the moon would have responded, sure, but don't you know that whatever beauty you might see in me is actually and simply the reflection of another. In fact, you must know, the moon continued in this conversation, you must know that I don't even have a light of my own. What you have seen in me is nothing more than me reflecting someone else's light. I simply deflect what I receive from the one who is truly bright. The one around whom all the stars and the planets revolve. I'm here only to remind you of the true light, the sun. And that, my friends, is the story of the moon. She is just a servant who only reflects the light of the real star of the solar system, namely the sun. And so we read in John chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8 there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness. About the light. In other words, what the moon is to the sun, S-U-N, sun. John the Baptist was to the sun, S-O-N, sun. The Son of God, or as John the Apostle called him in verse 1, the Word. He who was with God and who was God, this is then the second ingredient in a recipe for a truly satisfying Christmas feast humble witness humble witness. In this regard, John the Baptist has much to teach us. A critical lesson indeed. In an age consumed with self-gratification where we want the glory to come to us, John the Baptist will teach us that a life well lived is a life of deflection where the glory goes to another. The glory goes to another. And as we will soon discover This is also one of the central lessons of Christmas. So with this in mind, let us see what our passage has to teach us this morning as we consider the humble witness of John the Baptist. Obviously, we could spend a long time thinking about this particular man, and there's a place for that. He certainly is a man with tremendous importance in the history of redemption. But our passage for today will limit itself to just a few descriptors of John the Baptist, the ones the Holy Spirit saw fit to include. And here's the first descriptor of John the Baptist that we are given by the Apostle John, not to be confused, there are two different Johns. A descriptor we would normally simply gloss over as fairly unimportant. But as I hope to prove, this is indeed a very intentional move on the part of The Apostle John, to establish his argument on solid ground. And so the Apostle John begins describing John the Baptist in verse 6 by pointing out the obvious, which will also sound very obvious to you and to me. And this is the nature of John the Baptist. The nature of John the Baptist. Consider how the the verse starts in verse 6. There was a what? A man. There was a man. We immediately see a contrast, contrast, don't we? Having described the word, this infinite person who is in relationship with God, but who is also God and who was already before all things were made, the Apostle John now enters human history in his narrative by mentioning the first quality of John the Baptist. There was a man. He's just a man. In contrast to the divinity of the Word, the Apostle John now draws our attention to the humanity of John the Baptist. It sounds like this. In the beginning, the Word already was. While John the Baptist came into being. He came into being. John the Baptist was created. The Word was not The Apostle John is taking us from eternal realities into worldly realities. Now, I bring this up because I want us to consider the utter condescension embedded in that short sentence. There was a man. Now, I understand that the word condescension can have very negative connotations such as arrogance, disdain disparagement, etc. But condescension can also mean affability or friendliness to your inferiors. Consider this with me. Undoubtedly, God could have selected a mighty angel of impressive appearance, thundering voice, majestic power to be the one who would come to announce that he who is eternal was entering human history and was about to appear this would have been perfectly fine and perfectly within the prerogative of god imagine the archangel michael oh he could have he could have come as the forerunner of the eternal word who was coming into the worlds and who are we kidding that would have been pretty cool Imagine seeing a mighty archangel, the one who is in charge of all the heavenly armies, making an appearance in first century Israel to announce the coming of the eternal word. That certainly would have gotten the attention of people like nothing else. And yet verse 6 almost abruptly says simply, there was a man with a pretty average name, John. John, nothing against you, brother. Why does this matter? Well, it matters for at least two reasons. First, the Apostle John, the man who wrote these words, is arguing that God, the one who exists in eternity, the word by whom all things were made and who stands outside of creation, created humanity in a very special way. God God loves humanity. And from the beginning, God has chosen to stoop down and involve himself with us in order to accomplish his plans. God is supremely interested in humans. God uses humans because he loves humans. John the Baptist, just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Josiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he was just a man. But this is what God does, for God so loved the world. Therefore, it makes sense, it makes all the sense in the world for the Apostle John to not say there was a mighty angel, but there was a man. Second, these words matter, for they are preparing us for verse 14. If it feels somewhat abrupt, to go from eternal realities to there was a man, then just wait until John shocks us to the core in verse 14. He's about to introduce us to the central doctrine of Christianity to which we will devote our undivided attention on December 25th. For now, just take some time to consider men with me. Do you know any men in your life? Do you know any humans? They're interesting Creatures, aren't they? You're thinking about the person next to you, huh? Yes, they're interesting creatures. Let me ask you this. What's so lovable about us that God would be so interested in us? Or that God would call men to serve him? Do you realize that there could be an angel right now preaching to you? But it's me. (laughs) Just me preaching to you. There could be an angel to grab your attention, to call you, and yet he calls me. Why? Why would God set apart men to relate to him? Let me give you a hint, which also relates to verse 14. This is all leading up to verse 14. And as we know from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, God created us in a very special way, right? How did he create us? Well, he made man in his own image, after his own likeness. Don't miss this. We were made in God's image and likeness, which is something no other created being, can say only humans. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something happened to that image. Do you remember that? Something happened to that image. It was utterly corrupted. It was distorted. It was marred by something not native to it, not originally to it. What is that? Sin. Sin marred the image of God. Sin polluted that image. It did not totally erase it, because if if it did, we would be animals. It did not totally erase the image of God in us, but it thoroughly contaminated that image. The image of who? What are we talking about? The image of God. The image of God. God made man in his image, but that image is now stained, no longer pure, therefore no longer reflecting his holy creator. I bring this up because that's the answer to our original question. Why does God take an interest in us instead of abandoning us to our own demise? The answer, and and remember the angels, right? When the angels fell, what did God do for them? Get out of my presence. You're condemned. But he did not do so with us. The answer, at least in part, is this. We are his image. We are his image. We have been stamped with God's likeness. Man was made to reflect God. Obviously, God does not despise his own image. God loves his own image. God will not discard his own image. Rather, in verse 14, we will learn what God did to restore that image once and for all and to bring that image back to a condition better than it originally was in the Garden of Eden. And what God did to restore that image of man, that image of God in man, is the one event that forever changed the world and will continue to change the world until the end. So we move from eternal realities in verses 1 through 5 to verse 6. There was a man because God made man for himself, and God will not throw us away. God will not throw men away. So having considered his nature... The Apostle John now offers us the explanation of John the Baptist. In other words, now we're dealing with the question, why John the Baptist? So here's the explanation of John the Baptist. The second half of verse 6, there was a man sent from God. I really, really love how the Apostle John writes this. He almost casually says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. But this somewhat casual statement is is packed with importance. The statement of verse 6 marks the end of an era. The statement of verse 6, there was a man who came from God or sent from God whose name was John. That statement marks the end of an era. An era of silence. What type of silence? The worst kind. I'm speaking of divine silence silence. The last Old Testament prophet to speak a word from God to the people of God was Malachi. Please turn in your Bibles to the last book in the Old Testament, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. I am not saying that Malachi was the last Old Testament book written, but that Malachi was the last prophet to come to Israel with a direct word from the Lord. After Malachi, God did not address the people of Israel again for over 400 years, close to 450 years to be more precise. For four and a half centuries, there was a famine in the land of Israel, a famine of the word of God. Revelation through prophets stopped with Malachi. And this intertestamental period, meaning the time between the Old and the New Testament, saw many developments, both politically, socially, religiously, linguistically, economically, etc. Et many empires arose and many empires fell during this time. Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world, and Greek culture and language spread throughout the entire world. But the Greeks were subsequently defeated by the Romans who became the foremost political and military power. This time between the Old and the New Testaments is also the time in which several religious sects developed, such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. In many ways, these religious groups had departed from true Old Testament interpretation and they developed their own man-made traditions, so much so that when the Messiah actually appeared, they did not even recognize him. But this is all happening in this time between the Old and the New Testament, between Malachi, the last prophet, and this new development. Now, please follow along as I read Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I want you to see something incredibly important. Right before this 450 year period of silence, confusion, and corruption started, Malachi spoke these words from God to Israel. Consider the first half of verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. What does that have to do with John the Baptist? Simply put, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy concerning Elijah both in Matthew chapter 11 verse 14 and in Matthew 17 verse 12 Jesus spoke as John the Baptist as being the Elijah who was prophesied by Malachi In other words John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah as Luke chapter 1 verse 17 makes very clear therefore Malachi's prophecy was not literal but typological Elijah did come but not literally Rather, he came represented in the ministry of John the Baptist. And who sent him? God. What God spoke through Malachi, he fulfilled in John the Baptist. Therefore, John the Baptist came into the scene to break the 450-year-long silence from God and to end this intertestamental period. But with his appearing, the appearing of John the Baptist, something else was coming. Read with me Malachi 4, 5 again, once again, and notice the second half. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before what? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Wow. Wow. What an important time this is. If John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the coming of Elijah, then John the Baptist came right before what? Right before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In fact, go back one chapter in Malachi chapter 3 and read with me verse 1. Malachi 3.1. This is, remember, we're talking about the last prophecies given to Israel. This is starting a 450-year period of silence, and this is the last words that God spoke to his people. Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger. Whose messenger? Who's speaking? It's God through Malachi, right? God through Malachi. So God is saying, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we know this messenger was Elijah. And we also know that this was fulfilled in John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. Moreover, we know that the Baptist, John the Baptist, appeared to prepare the way of the Lord. But did you notice the language? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it is the Lord himself speaking. And he says, God himself says, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who's speaking? Once again, it is God speaking. In other words, before I come down, says God, my messenger will show up. When you see him, this Elijah figure, know that I'm very close. And the messenger did show up. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Here he is. The promised Elijah finally appeared. And for the first time in over four centuries, the divine silence was broken. So now we know the explanation of John the Baptist. He showed up because God sent him to fulfill the prophecy concerning Elijah And the appearing of the Baptist on the human stage was the sign that something much greater was coming. What was that? Well, the awesome day of the Lord. John the Baptist appeared right before the awesome day of the Lord, a day which verse 14 will unpack for us. Now, before we move on, just consider how God seems to like the 400-year mark to do great things. Have you thought about that? After 400 plus years of slavery, God sent Moses and led the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Likewise, after 400 plus years of silence, God sent John the Baptist and broke his silence. But more importantly, John the Baptist came to announce that a new and much better exodus was coming, was coming. God's true deliverance was on its way. And that's the explanation of John the Baptist. Now consider with me the follow-up question. We know God sent John the Baptist into history as a prophetic fulfillment and to break the 450-year silence. But now the question is to do what specifically? The answer is given to us in verse 7, which is the calling of John the Baptist, the calling Of John the Baptist. Verse 7 He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. As always, there is much to point out from this little verse, but for the sake of time, I will limit myself to highlight the central word of verse 7. The calling of John the Baptist was to be a witness, a witness. And that term, Witness is quite important and very insightful. The term witness is a court term with deep legal connotations. That in and of itself yields quite a tremendous insight. Why would the Apostle John use that legal term witness to describe the ministry of John the Baptist? Well, here's the answer. Why did he come as a witness? Why would he use that legal term? Because of the nature of life in this world, which can be summed up in one word. Can you guess what word that is? Out of the hundreds of thousands of words that could possibly be, can you guess the one I'm thinking of that describes life in this world? If you guess it, I'll give you a book. What did you say, Micah? Oh, no. No. Who? Okay. Okay. I'll ask you later what that means. <laughs> enmity. Enmity. What does that remind you of? Genesis 3:15. In that passage, God spoke to the serpent and said, "I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring." Brothers and sisters, we are born into a world full of enmity. Enmity between what? Enmity between light and darkness. Enmity between those who are of the darkness and those who are of the light. The Apostle John already addressed this to some extent in verse 5, where he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This means that the struggle between light and darkness is real. Darkness, as a desire, makes attempts to overcome, to overpower, to capture the light. And notice also, who put the enmity there? Who put the enmity between darkness and light? It was not a random outcome of the fall. Who put it in there? God said, I will put enmity. God himself put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between light and darkness. Why? Because God himself is at war with darkness. He's at war with darkness. In fact, Christmas is God's ultimate declaration of war against darkness. John the Baptist was sent to be a witness in the sense that he came to speak on behalf of the light. Thus, he entered into this violent confrontation with darkness. The summary... Uh, of the content of John's witness is given to us in verse 15. John spoke a message concerning the light, but the implications of being a witness to the light or about the light were massive. As most of you you know, John the Baptist did not have a very pretty, pretty death. He was beheaded. He was beheaded. His head was cut off, in case you don't know what beheaded means. I want to make sure you get the message. His head was separated from his body with a sword. Why? Well, he was beheaded because he spoke on behalf of what? The light. That's what he did. He spoke on behalf of the light to a ruler, to Herod the Tetrarch, and he confronted sinful behavior. He confronted because he spoke on behalf of the light. He came to be a witness of the light let me ask you this was john's confrontation with the sinfulness and darkness of herod part of his witnessing about the light or was something completely different from it a complete separate duty from it no he it has everything to do with it witnessing about the light means you are entering a violent conflict violent conflict the enmity of genesis 3:15 Herod and those around him were living as though there was no light to be seen they had embraced the darkness but john the baptist came with a different message the light is coming into the world john the baptist said so you better repent herod you're not free to do whatever you want to live your life however you want why because there's light and you know what the job of the light is is to expose darkness so herod you better repent and so he lost his head one commentator explained the importance of the term witness in this way quote the world had jesus on trial but the world was unable to produce a valid witness against him this is important insight one that explains why is it that people resist the message of the gospel of Jesus and at times it does so violently. John the Baptist was sent into the world to be a witness because the world loves darkness and puts the light on trial. Christmas might have seemed to be a silent night where all was calm and all was bright, but the ministry of John the Baptist as a witness reveals that Christmas, the coming of the eternal word into the world, was a confrontation with darkness. It was the supreme declaration of war against the kingdom of Satan. But with John's witnessing also came another aspect of his ministry, one that expresses his true humility. And here's the final one the denial of John the Baptist, the denial of John the Baptist. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Finally, a good kind of denial. It is somewhat unfortunate that when we think of famous denials in the Bible, our minds almost always go to the mother of all denials, poor Peter. He's the man who denied Christ. And I guess we should remember that denial, for we have much to learn from it. But what about the beauty of the denial of John the Baptist? I am not the light, he said. I am not the light. I'm here simply to be a witness about the light. Unlike Peter's denial, the Baptist's denial is the best kind of denial. It is the kind with which the moon would wholeheartedly agree. If you were to ask the moon, are you the center of the solar system? She would immediately reply, not even close. Likewise, on several occasions, John the Baptist was asked, are you the Messiah? And he immediately, the Bible says, replied, not even close. Now, there are a few reasons why John the Apostle included verse 8 in his introduction to the gospel. There are many reasons we can talk about. One such reason could be that there was indeed a type of sect That had developed in which John the Baptist was seen and followed almost as a Messiah-like figure. There is some evidence of that, especially in the book of Acts. If that's the case, then John the Apostle had an apologetic reason or desire to correct that notion, that mistake among the Jewish community. That he was indeed not the Messiah. And that could be a legitimate reason why he included verse 8. Ultimately, however, I believe the Apostle John had one main objective for inserting verse 8, and it is the universal reason, not limited to John the Baptist only. And what is that reason? Man exists for the glory of Christ. Men exist for the glory of Christ. Just like the moon exists to diffuse the light of the sun, man exists to diffuse the light of the sun of God. That's why we are here. And so even even though this has been a very short, very general overview of the life and ministry of John the Baptist, I want to give you just some few basic lessons that we can learn from him. These are basic yet critical lessons from John, which we are often prone to forget. So here are three simple lessons that we can learn from John. Number one, we too have been sent to serve the true light by witnessing. By witnessing. I know this sounds obvious, but I want to point something out. In this regard, John the Baptist stands as the prototypical paradigmatic disciple, or we could think of John the Baptist in this way. Essentially, he is the pioneer disciple, the one who led the way for all the disciples who came after him. He is the one who set the pattern for the rest of us to follow. We are not the sources of light, but we are diffusers of the light. But as we saw, brothers and sisters, John the Baptist paid a price for it. He literally lost his head. Remember, he came as a witness, which is a legal term. John the Baptist came to make his case for the Lord Jesus because the world had put the light on trial. Darkness does not welcome the light. Therefore, witnesses always enter a confrontation. The incarnation of the Word is the most drastic demonstration of this confrontation. Want to know why? Well, here it is. The incarnation of the word of God means that Jesus, the man. This is how Jesus offends the world. Jesus, the man, is showing us what true humanity was meant to look like. Or to put it differently, Jesus is the true man who walks in true holiness. Therefore, Jesus, the light incarnate, as he walked on earth and healed and taught, he exposed the darkness of our human condition. Consequently, the darkness hated him. Because Jesus is the light, he exposes the darkness and puts darkness to shame. So yes, we have been sent to witness about the light, meaning about Jesus, but we must know that this is a confrontation with darkness. But what is our consolation? That the darkness cannot and will not overcome the light. Rather, take heart, the light has overcome the world. Here's a second lesson that we learn. Witnessing is an antidote to pride for it reminds us that life is not ultimately about us witnessing is an antidote to pride for it reminds us that life is not ultimately about us the lord jesus told us to consider the flowers of the field And to remember the faithfulness of God through them. Use the flowers of the field and remember how God is faithful. I would like to humbly follow in the footsteps of Jesus and invite you to consider the moon. Consider the moon and remember your purpose in life. Next time you see the moon, remember that light is not her own. She is simply participating in the light of the sun who is truly bright. She is there to diffuse that light so that we might see it. Likewise, you were placed here on earth by God to be a small moon whose true source of life and light is the Son of God, the Word incarnate. He is the true light. You are called to receive that light and to diffuse that light so that others may see and believe. And that's the Christian life. It is about asking what does it look like to diffuse the light of Jesus as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a worker, as a citizen, as a student, as a mother, or as a father? What does it look like to, cons- to diffuse the light of Jesus, to deflect the light of Jesus so that others might see it? So consider, my friends, consider the moon. And number three, Christmas is the greatest and ultimate story of humble witness. Let's finish together by opening our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And we will finish here. Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to read together just a few verses, three verses, five through eight. As we think of the Humility of John the Baptist, let us end with ultimate humility as we consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Here is the call of Christmas. Here is the ultimate call of Christmas. The invitation of Christmas begins in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. Here's the ultimate invitation of Christmas. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If humility is measured by our willingness to give up our own prerogatives for the sake of a cause, then Christmas is humility beyond measure. It is humility to the utter- utmost, unlike anything the world has ever seen. The Word became flesh. And he did so for you and for me, so that in human form, the word could live the life that you and I could not live. And so that in human form, the word could die the death that you and I deserved. So this Christmas, remember this lesson. Life is not ultimately about you. It is about the Son of God. So now let us go and serve him with our lives. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of John the Baptist, a man who understood the reason why he was placed in this world. We understand that circumstances are different for for us now, but yet the, the call has not changed. For we know that all things were made not only through Christ, but for him, and that includes us. And so help us to learn from John the Baptist. And may your spirit help us understand what this means, that we were placed upon this earth simply to reflect the light of the one who is truly bright, your son. And so help us to learn from the humility of John the Baptist so that Christ might increase in us. And we pray these things.